Now I'm on the end where I'm seeing companies that I've invested at in at a very small level have become billion dollar companies. And what's so interesting to me is as they become billion dollar companies, you see the people that are getting wealth from those companies, of these women-bounded companies, and it's all men on the cap table. And now I'm in this process where, where how am I going to get more women on the cap table so that they can make some of that wealth? Good morning. This is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm Andrea Pineda Salgado. On Monday evening, Epicenter NYC and UBS hosted a panel on the next generation of Asian American entrepreneurship. Discussions centered around creating and planning for generational wealth. Panelists and presenters included Angela Acharya, the CEO of A-Series Investments and Management, Lucy Yu, the owner of You and Me Books, Anshu Prasad, the CEO and co-founder of Leaf Logistics, and Sean Rowe, the co-founder of Lunar Seltzer. The conversation was organized and moderated by UBS's Bianca Benedetti-Fang and Epicenter's Mitra Kalita. To kick off the conversation, entrepreneurs Sean Rowe, Lucy Yu, Anju Prasad, and also Angela Acharya shared the stories of how they got started. So I do want to start, Sean, because there is a familiarity already with your product. You built this company on the premise of creating what you call a reverse lunchbox movement. I was wondering if you could tell us what that means and how does it relate to the next generation of Asian American entrepreneurship? Yeah, so uh, the reverse lunchbox moment is a playoff of the lunchbox moment. Uh, and I guess for folks who are familiar with the term or the concept, it is for where children of immigrants typically, um, when they go to schools as a child in grade school, their parents would pack them uh, food that they would eat at home, I guess, quote unquote, the ethnic foods, only to get either made fun at, you know, get weird looks. I think what we wanted to do with the brand Lunar is really just try and help open and tell the story that like things that quote unquote are ethnic that our parents grew up with and you know we enjoyed as a child are something that we are extremely proud and something that we do want to share with the rest of the world. They'll say, hey, you know, have you heard of? Do you know what yuzu tastes like? Well, this Lunar tastes real damn good. You should give it a try. Um, so that's really the energy and I think the, the spirit of what we were trying to capture. As I jokingly tell people, my job is to get people drunk. But in reality, I think that's really you know, a broader message that we want to help at least amplify. Um, I wanted to shift to Lucy Yu of You and Me Books. Um, you were a chemical engineer. You were a line cook. You were raised by a single mom. What made you say bookstore? Well, I mean, I was an engineer, so I'm still just as nerdy as I was before. But I don't know. I think in all of those professions that I've had, there has been storytelling. There's been how do we share stories with each other? How do we share a story into solving a problem? And how can we share stories through food? And that was something that was always really special to me and a way for me to connect with people um, and how my mom and I connected. So stories were always at the forefront of my mind. And what better way to tell stories than books? I was always a really avid reader. Um, switching careers was not the easiest thing, I would say. Um, I didn't tell my mother <laughs> that I opened up a bookstore until I signed the lease. But probably you Asian children out there, you know. If you know, you know. I mean, it was a lifelong dream of mine, and I thought I would have to wait until retirement. Um, and I just sped it up a little bit. I wanted to ask about your origin story because it might, this is just based on paper, right? But it might have been a more traditional trajectory after graduating. So I was a biochemist in college and um, when it came out of school, 
it was cool to use startups. And um, so I worked in a five floor walk up in the East Village on technology, with Passport Technology in the late 90s. So I just got sort of sucked into the world of technology and supply chain and have stayed. And I describe you as a self driving truck empire. Trucking is a very manual, very cumbersome, very transactional industry. Yes, one day we're going to have autonomous trucks, but I'm not ready to be on the highway with next to a truck. I mean, bad enough to look over and see what people actually do in their cars. It's another thing to imagine there's nobody in that behind the wheel. So over time, yes, we're headed that way. There's technology that will that will meaningfully change the way this industry operates. But today, it's five million white collar workers who are in making phone calls, sending faxes, we still do that in our industry, um, and making that a little bit better and a little more reliable is important enough. So the report that prompted some of this discussion was called Invest to Advance, and it found that 44% of high net worth Asian investors are more likely to identify compensation from work as their primary source of wealth compared to overall investors. So the 44% is quite significant among Asians compared to 24% for everybody else. And of course, we're centering the businesses here, but I think a lot of the study around multicultural wealth building is about that access to capital, um, but also the desire to effect change. And so I wanted to shift to Anjula on that note, because you could probably bridge us to um, that world of um, how do you do this and the funding. So I think ultimately, it's a number of things. We're in a group where we're talking about wealth. You have to become undeniable in your storytelling. That's one thing. And then it has to be backed up by numbers. So I'll give you a, a great story, which I think I talks about this. So Mindy Kaling and Priyanka Chopra came together to pitch a movie about an Indian wedding, a story about the two of them. And at the time we were pitching it, we were just off the hills of Crazy Rich Asians. And Crazy Rich Asians had really rocked the box office. If I remember correctly now, at that time I knew all my numbers. Like, I mean, I was good at my numbers. So I think it did 280 million at the box office. So that was amazing for what someone would call like a niche story about an Asian community, right? So when we went to pitch, we don't even have a name for this, this movie, by the way, but it got picked up by Universal. Um, but when we went out to pitch it, every single studio we went to see for that movie wanted it. And it got to the point where we were in one pitch where the head of the studio turned around to us and said, look, everyone's going to be selling to you guys. So, you know, I don't want you to sell to me anymore. I want to sell to you. And it was amazing. It was the head of a studio's um, white woman. And I was just like, wow, she's selling to us. That's incredible. <laughs> and the point of that story is there was already there was already already this wave that was happening. It was Crazy Rich Asians done really well. It's been like a blockbuster, and we were coming off the hills of that. But what what was interesting about it was that we were undeniable in the story that we wanted to tell, and that's been picked up, and that will go into production next year. But we also like knew our numbers, so we were able to go in and say, "This is real. This can happen." And I think in everything that I do. I'm an investor outside of managing Crankature for Jonas and, and producing movies and the, the work that I do. So I, I always have a number story, no matter what. And I'll do the diligence and I'll do the work to have that number story. So I just my point here is to say that you've got to be a great storyteller and sell something that's really exciting and get people to want to come on that journey with you. But you've also got to be able to tell a really good number story to, to join it. Later in the evening, the panelists, as well as UBS's Bianca Benedetti-Fang, discussed how they see wealth as it relates to their business. 
The way that we see business ownership at UBS is a path to wealth creation. And I think a lot of business owners are very much focused on the day-to-day. There's so many things that you have to be thinking of as you're building and growing a company and not necessarily thinking about the longer term, right? And how are we leveraging this business as an asset so that we can you know, gain some wealth and make sure that we're addressing the people, the causes that are most important to, to the business owner. Um, and that certainly can be family and community as well. Um, and what I will say is when it, when it comes to business owners, it's really important for them to be thinking about longer term Specifically, you know, some of the challenges that we deal with with minority business owners is leveraging minority business enterprise certifications. So certainly a great way to build and grow your business short term. But if you're going to sell your business, oftentimes a lot of potential buyers who don't maintain that MBE certification status will try to come in and discount existing contracts or existing client relationships because they don't think that they're going to be able to keep those clients um, after you exit the business. Um, So what we really want to try to do is make sure that business owners that are leveraging those things to build and grow the day-to-day are thinking about the longer term and are maybe thinking about, okay, who in my network who may also maintain uh, an MBE status might be able to acquire me? Who in my network might be able to help me to identify who the consumers or the contracts are that I have that are um, you know, hinged upon this MBE status that maybe we can figure out some sort of, of uh, way that we can continue that uh, so that the next buyer can take potential advantage of it. So it's all about really kind of thinking about longer term and what do you want your legacy to be. On the um, wealth creation idea, I just wondered if we could kind of go down the row here, if we start with Lucy, and talk about what, uh, how you see wealth as it relates to your business, because I think one of, one of my favorite things about You and Me books is the narrative of how open you are to the community. I think it's a great question. Um, starting a business that's community-focused, that is still needs to be profitable, is a tough balance that I have to think about all the time. I... We have to keep going so that we can keep serving our community and the people that need it. And to do that, we have to be profitable as a business. And there are different ways that I go about that. And there's also different ways that by doing that, I can give room to people that may not be able to afford all the books that they can. I didn't, I never had business experience. I never had an entrepreneurial background. I'm an engineer, I was a line cook, you know, and so all of these different pathways that I took to get here just reminded me that the people that look out for you will continue to look out for you. And I think that is wealth. Um, You know, at the same time, after four months of starting the business, we were in a profitable business too. So I think that speaks volumes to the community that is looking out for us in the way that we are looking for the community. Wow. Sean, how do you, how do you interpret wealth? For us, you know, we, we, Maybe maybe we're hopeless optimists, but we'd like to believe that those are both possible. Now, obviously, it's not the path of least resistance by any means, and it's going to be extra hard. But I think that's what kind of motivates us to push and be as good as we try to be. Because I guess our kind of philosophy is you know, more or less be so be so good that they can't ignore you, right? But you know, at the same time, to Lucy's point too, like even 
when you're riding the airplane, they always say in the case of an emergency, you gotta put your own oxygen mask on first before you help others. So, you know, we try to, to I think balance is the key word to Lucy's point, um, just trying to make sure that we are putting on our oxygen masks first, but also making sure that, you know, we're not, you know, we're, we're paying it forward and we're helping out and, and potentially what little we can with just some drinks, create some more opportunities for other folks uh, as well. Angela. Um, I think about wealth creation a lot. And, um, you know, in two sides of what I do, so outside of the Hollywood stuff that I do, I'm an investor. I actually started, my first investment I ever made was kind of an accident. I invested in a company called ClassPass. It sold last year for probably over a billion valuation. And Pio Kodakia, who was the founder of ClassPass, just came to me and needed help. And it was one South Asian woman to another. I'd raised money for Daisy Hit. She'd come to me for advice and um, no one would give her money. So I said, look, I have to give you some money so that when people ask me why they should invest in you, I can say that I invested in you. But I was not an investor and I gave her a very small amount of money and actually ended up incubating her in my office and then really just becoming a mentor for her. But what was super interesting about that was really just my path on how I wanted to help South Asian women build businesses and women in general, because obviously we're underrepresented and very small amount of venture capital goes to women, let alone South Asian women or women of color. So that just sort of became like this mission of mine. And also I believe that investing in women will make money. So, and I've proven that 10 times over. So, you know, that was one thing. But now what's really interesting about my journey is I'm seeing more and more of these, now I'm on the end where I'm seeing companies that I've invested at in at a very small level have become billion dollar companies. And what's so interesting to me is as they become billion dollar companies, you see the people that are getting wealth from those companies, of these women founded companies, and it's all men on the cap table. And now I'm in this process where, where how am I gonna get more women on the cap table so that they can make some of that wealth? So I'm gonna piggyback on that. That's that comments that Angela just made about, um, well, so we think about ownership. It's one of our core values in the company and everybody who works at LEAF is an owner. Uh, and we inculcate that kind of uh, understanding from very early on. Frankly, when I was thinking about the, the company and the idea, I'm kind of thinking about the, the math story, to really build this in venture scale, frankly, I didn't know what that meant. So previous companies that I was involved with were bootstrapped and kind of grown organically. Um, so I needed to go out and ask advice from people who knew what that meant. Like, what, what does it mean to actually put tens of millions of dollars to work to kind of create something that could have this lasting impact? Um, and much like those investors wanted ownership rights um, because they knew what the game was and I didn't, um, it was important for me to say that all of us that were gonna you know, bleed for this company were going to be owners. And so if there was a transformative outcome, it would be transformative for all of us. So it was really about ownership translating the wealth so that, you know, if we did this right, um, it would it would change, you know, it didn't matter who you were. It's like there's this sort of idea, and somebody taught, told me this about sort of going out and raising money. You can go and ask for money and you'll get advice, or you can go out and ask for advice and sometimes you'll get money. And that worked for me the last couple of times. That works for me, by the way. <laughs> To learn more about events like this, make sure to sign up for our newsletter at epicenter-nyc.com slash become hyphen a hyphen subscriber slash. Also, make sure to check out our show notes for links to all the businesses and entrepreneurs that took part in the Asian American Entrepreneurship Panel. Before we go, our new 
weekly update on monkeypox in New York City. Make sure to tune in for the latest information on vaccines, testing, care options, and much more. Hi, I'm Sam Zacker, back with this week's New York City monkeypox update. Last week, I walked you through our monkeypox text updates, a new way to get news, information, and resources on the virus in New York City. If you have any questions about signing up for the Epicenter NYC monkeypox text updates, just send us an email at vaccine at epicenter-nyc.com. You can also learn more about this resource by listening to last week's episode. Today, I'll be answering a question that's come up a lot lately. Can you get the monkeypox vaccine and the COVID-19 vaccine at the same time? According to the CDC, there is currently no data on administering the Genios monkeypox vaccine at the same time as other vaccines. But because Genios is based on a live, attenuated, non-replicating orthopox virus, meaning it uses a weakened form of the germ that causes a disease, the CDC says it can be administered without regard to timing of other vaccines. This includes simultaneous administration of Genios and other vaccines on the same day, but at different anatomic sites. More importantly, if you're currently at high risk of exposure, the monkeypox vaccination should not be delayed because of a recent receipt of a Moderna, Novavax, or Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. But while there is no minimum interval between the two vaccines, the CDC does recommend that adolescent or young adult males wait four weeks between receiving a monkeypox vaccine and a COVID-19 mRNA booster if possible because of the risk of myocarditis. Myocarditis is an inflammation of the heart muscle. You can read more on this by visiting the CDC website or clicking the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening. Join us weekly for more news and information on monkeypox in New York City. Keep in mind that things are changing quickly, so if you have any specific questions or need help finding a vaccine, reach out to us directly at vaccine at epicenter-nyc.com or call 917-818-2690. For more ways to get involved in your community, visit us at epicenter-nyc.com. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. And if you're not already a member, sign up today by using the link in our show notes. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Karavika. You can find more of their music on their website linked to in our podcast description.